0: Well, a couple of weeks ago I had so much fun when I was talking about cocktails. I set up my own little bar here and I've done it again tonight and I'm gonna try to make three cocktails before the end of the evening. And the first one I'm gonna start off with what I had last time, first thing. I'm gonna make a, one of the things I had last time. Gonna make a martini again. So, uh, with a twist, not slice. So anyway, I'm going to do take two ounces of Hendrix gin, Scotland, It's about two ounces right there. All right, I'm going to take one ounce of dry vermouth or so, not quite an ounce, and then I'm going to stir this, stir 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 until um, you're not shaking because you don't want to dilute the spirits. Now, I'll be making a drink in which I shake it a little bit later. But no, you don't want to dilute the spirits. You just want it to chill, get everything nice and chilled. We strain it into our glass. Excellent. And then add our twist. Give it a good twist, open up the pores there, get the essential oils, rub it around the rim, drop it in, let it sit for a minute. Let it just sit for a moment to let all of the citrusy stuff get into the uh, into the beverage, into the cocktail. And there it is. A gin martini with a twist. Ah, that's good. Now. Recently, a story hit the press and you might have caught it in between all of the white noise about fake news, Russians and draining the swamp, etc, etc A shipment of Bombay Sapphire London Dry Gin to Canada had a slight problem It had almost twice the alcohol content that it should have Instead of the standard 40% alcohol it was more than 77% Now what had happened was that a third-party bottler of the product had filled and shipped the bottles without diluting the spirit. This mistake was discovered when a consumer in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, noticed that their gin and tonic was particularly strong and she returned the bottle to the store where she had purchased it. The problem, of course, is that with people who regularly drink the product, they're used to 40%, that is 80 proof, as we say here in the States. And uh, they would either notice that their drink didn't taste quite right or that they were falling on the floor after drinking their usual three cocktails. Now, Bacardi International, which owns Bombay Sapphire, they launched an internal investigation and found that a large shipment going to the provinces of Nova Scotia, Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan contained this high-octane gin. Now most of Canada's retailers of alcohol are government-owned stores. However, there are also bars and restaurants that were affected and a recall of the product in those provinces uh, with those particular lot numbers and product codes was issued and retailers, hospitality providers, and consumers were advised to return the gin and receive a, correct a correctly-strength libation. Now, I have to believe that when it all is said and done and they start counting the bottles, there's going to be a lot of them that didn't make it home. Gin has an interesting and a very evolved history. In some ways, it's quite different from its origins, but in, in other ways, it's actually unchanged. Gin isn't aged like whiskeys. It isn't matured like wines, brandies, sherries, and port. It, while it is associated with one particular country, its actual birthplace is in another country, and it can actually be made in any country in the world and still be called Gin. From very humble beginnings, it is now used to make some of the world's most highest class cocktails. And within a matter of just a few decades, it, w- it went from being a favorite spirit to a hated concoction, and then back to a favorite spirit within the span of just a little more than a century. From improved production techniques to medicinal treatments to classic cocktails to a mainstay of cheap drinking during Prohibition, for the past 500 years or so, gin has been a part of the passage of time and drank along the way, just like I'm going to have another drink right now. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with, this one time we were eating a salad, This is history, the story of alcohol. Now, before I get on with tonight's narration, I want to thank everybody who was a part of our second history happening. That was uh, the first one we had was back in February, and that was a whiskey tasting with the good people from William Grant and Sons. Now, this one, this past Sunday, we had our Mother's Brothers and Sister Beer and Baseball Road Trip. And we had 50 of our best friends. We took a coach down to Springfield, had a VIP tour of the Mother's Brewing Company, saw a fantastic baseball game. Big shout-outs to everybody who helped make this happen, including an especially Fectal beverage who made this trip. Bernie, Morgan, Kyle, Andy, everybody out there Thank you for helping us put it together And to Jeff, who the owner of Mother's Brewing For opening up early on a Sunday morning Having us in, treating us to a personal tour of the brewery And letting us drink some of their fine beers It was a great day And we'll have another history happening soon I promise, just keep listening to the podcast Following us on Facebook And you too will know when our next history happening is going to occur and I would say this one is probably going to happen again next year. Another Mothers, Brothers and Sisters baseball, Beer and Baseball Tour. I would say it will. Now, on with the show. Gin. With most of it, you either love it or you hate it. Now, I will admit, for years I had an aversion to the spirit, but that was completely my own fault. Uh, you see, the first gin I had ever drank... Was around the time I was entering high school when we stole a bottle of gin from my friend, Jeff Bridges, from his parents' house. And uh, no, it wasn't the dude. Uh, it wasn't Jeff Bridges of the Big Lebowski. No, this was Jeff Bridges from Saverton, Missouri. I went ahead, I explained that because I know somebody out there would hear that and say, wow, he knows Jeff Bridges. I think I'm friends with the dude. I'm an admirer of the dude, but I'm not a friend. Uh, but Jeff Bridges from Saverton, he and I, have we've been close friends for a long time. Anyway. We stole a fifth of Seagram's gin from his dad's liquor cabinet, and then we mixed it with whatever we could find, which happened to be Hawaiian Punch and Mountain Dew, and drank it, we liked it at first, and then we puked, and then I didn't like gin after that for a number of years. But as I grew older, especially in the past couple of decades with owning the pub, I have grown to have a greater appreciation for gin. And beginning a few years ago, I was at the Stag's Head in Dublin. And I was in the middle of a 35-day odyssey of guiding three separate tours around Ireland. And in that span, I only had five days off for myself. Now, it was a rainy night. I was walking the streets of Dublin. I was in between tours two and three. And I was exhausted. And I plopped into a bar stool there at the Stag's Head. And my friend, Pat Dowling, the barman, He's uh, since moved on to the Bailey over off of Duke Street. Anyway, Pat says, uh, what are you gonna have, a pint or a pour, meaning a Guinness or a whiskey, which was my usual take when I was there. And I said, uh, Pat, you know what? You make, make me a cocktail. I want something light, refreshing, delicious. And what he made for me, simple but heavenly. Hendrick's gin with fever tree tonic, and a slice of cucumber and freshly ground black pepper. Man, nothing fancy, nothing pretentious, just a delicious drink, which I have now come to call one of my favorites. I now think I've learned what makes the difference in between one hating or one loving gin. It's three things. Good gin, good mixers, and a good bartender. Most spirits of any kind mercily entered the history of humanity, and all have distinct origin stories, the vast majority of which are apocryphal, which is just a fancy word for bullshit. And gin is really no difference. But we can kind of pinpoint when gin became the drink that it is today, and that is in the early 1600s. Now, as the fanciful story goes, German-Dutch alchemist, a very famous man named Francis de la Beau, literally translated to Francis of the Woods, but he is historically better known by his Latinized name, Franciscus Silvius. Now, Silvius was also a physician and a geologist. He was another one of those great minds that came out of the Enlightenment, like we talked about last week. Now, he, he's so famous, and he did so much, he has both a mineral named after him, Sylvite. And two parts of the human brain are named after him as well, the sylvan aqueduct and the sylvan fissure. But when it comes to gin, it is said that he was responsible for making it taste better and more refined. Now, the English word gin comes from the Dutch word "Jenever," which is meaning Jupiter in the Dutch language. And the berries of the juniper tree were used by those who made a roughly distilled malt wine the Dutch called, consequently, Jennifer, and it is still made today in the Netherlands. It's also made in Belgium, very northeastern France, and parts of northwestern Germany. Now, Silvius, it is said by, according to legend, he took the crude process of distillation and used uh, that was used to make Jennifer and he perfected it. He uh, made the spirit pure, with less harshness, he, and he added some botanicals to the distillation process for a better tasting and more pleasing drink. But there's a problem with this story. The word gin first appears in the English language in playwright Philip Massinger's play, The Duke of Milan, written in 1623, which means that gin would have been around. Uh, it would have been around in the ninth year of. Scientist Sylvius's young life. So truth be told, yeah, gin comes from Geneva, and that's about it. Now the English soldiers in the Low Countries of the Netherlands and Belgium in the 1600s, they loved the stuff. And so they took the spirit and the recipes for gin back to Jolly Old England, where gin became the spirit of the English and subsequently, the British Empire. But now you ask, what were English soldiers doing in the Netherlands in the early 1600s? Well, there was this thing called the Thirty Years' War. It's also known as the War of Religion on the European continent. And so, it's one of the most important wars ever in the history of Europe. It really made a big determination, but it's 30 years long. It's fucking boring. All right. Or it was for me when I was a freshman in college. But here, I'm going to give you the 30 years war in four minutes or less. And here we go. First, take a drink and relax. And now we go. In 1619 Ferdinand the King of Bohemia became Ferdinand II Holy Roman Emperor. And immediately he dictates that all provinces, baronies, duchies, dukedoms, fiefdoms, kingdoms, princedoms, lots of dums within the Holy Roman Empire, whether which was neither Roman nor holy, but that's another story. Ferdinand imposed religious uniformity upon all the territories within the Holy Roman Empire, imposing Catholicism throughout the land and threatening those countries which did not fall in line with his edict at war. This did not go over very well in those provinces in northern Germany, particularly Saxony where Martin Luther was from and where the Protestant Reformation began a century earlier earlier. These areas formed the Protestant Union against the imposition of Catholicism which Ferdinand took as an act of treason and thus began a war of religion which lasted for 30 years. Involved at various times over the duration, the following countries. On the Catholic side, the Holy Roman Empire, the Catholic League, Austria-Bohemia after 1620, the Spanish Empire, which wanted to take back the Netherlands, which they had lost only four decades earlier, Hungary, the Kingdom of Croatia, Denmark and Norway. You say, but Denmark and Norway were never Catholic. They were always Protestant. Yes, they were Lutheran, but the Kingdom of Sweden had taken control of parts of Denmark and Norway after 1643, and as anyone in history will tell you, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Catholics also received monetary support from Poland, the Vatican, of course, and the Ukrainian Cossacks, and you say, wait, the Cossacks are Russian Orthodox, not Catholics? Yes, but against the enemy of my enemy, you are my friend. On the Protestant side, really, we should call them the anti habsburg states and allies, which, of course, There includes Saxony, the United Provinces of the Netherlands, Bohemia before 1620, Denmark and Norway from 1625 until 1629, the Palatinate, Brandenburg, Prussia, Transylvania, Brunswick, Lundberg, Scotland, and France. Wait. France was Catholic, yes, but the Bourbon kings of France hated the aforementioned Habsburgs who were on the thrones of the Holy Roman Empire, Austria-Hungary, and Spain more than they hated the Protestants, so again, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Protestant side was also receiving funding from the Ottoman Empire, who was Islamic, of course, and the Ottomans' greatest rivals, the Russian Tsar, which is why the Cossacks were fighting for the Habsburgs. And the English were in there as well for five years from 1625 to 1630. The war was ended by the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, which allowed Protestant princes to continue their religious practices in their own lands. It recognized the independence of the Dutch from Spain, saw the rise of the Bourbon dynasty in France, solidified the hold of Denmark and Norway by the Swedes, further decentralized the Holy Roman Empire, ushering in its demise the beginning of the rise of the Austro-Hungary Empire under the Habsburgs. Yes, just like a minor league baseball game where they do not wear their names on their jerseys, you're going to need a scorecard to keep up with this shit. This was one of the most confusing and bloodiest of European conflicts ever up to that point, mainly because of the atrocities committed by the military against civilian populations of opposing religions. In other words, historically speaking, it was a fucked up mess and a shit show for 30 years in Europe. And now, looking at the stopwatch, I got that done in 2 minutes and 59 seconds. Under 3. I was, I'm was, i amazed. I didn't think I could get it down that fast. So, now... The English, now, they were there from 1625 to 1630, and the main reason they were there is they were fighting against the Spanish. You remember the Spanish and the English? They've got a long since uh, Henry the Eighth divorced Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of Spanish King Philip, and uh, because he wanted to marry uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Anne Boleyn. And uh, so he divorced her. There was a lot of uh, animosity between the English and the and the Spanish. So the English are over there fighting the Spanish to try to help the Dutch remain independent from the Habsburgs. Habsburgs. And these troops, these English troops fighting, were given what they were what they called Dutch courage during the long campaigns and damp weather. And that was gin. Okay, I'm going to have finish off this martini now. I got one more drink in it. All right. Eventually, these soldiers, they took gin back home with them, and the, list, the distillation of gin began on a greater scale, though the quality wasn't off. Eh, sometimes it was dubious. Nevertheless, the new drink became a firm favorite with these veterans of war who were from the poor classes, and they shared the gin, of course, with the rest of the downtrodden masses in England. So what makes gin, gin? What's the recipe that makes gin different than all other uh, distillates? Basically, it's a grain distillate like whiskey before it's aged and vodka. But in the distillation process, botanicals that is herbs and flowers and stuff like that botanicals are added including juniper berries being the most predominant and most famous but other flavorings can be added as well including but not limited to anise angelica root oris root licorice cinnamon almond extract savory citrus peels saffron frankincense maybe Jesus was gonna make some gin grains of paradise, nutmeg, coriander, cassia bark, and others. So basically, what is gin? It's botanical-infused vodka. So, in England, when gin starts being made, King Charles I, you know, the guy who lost his head to Oliver Cromwell in uh, in the English Civil War literally he lost his head a, um, he formed the Worshipful Company of Distillers where members had the sole right to distill spirits in London and Westminster and up to 21 miles from the London provided that they followed certain guidelines uh, really it was a distiller's trade guild and the formation of this improved both the quality of the gin and its image nothing like marketing to make something look better It also helped English agriculture because they were using lots of surplus grain, especially barley. Let's fast forward about mm, 40 years. King William III, better known as William of Orange, and his bride, Queen Mary Stuart, who was the grandchild of Charles I, who lost his head. Anyway, they came to the English throne at the invitation of Parliament in 1689, and they ran off Charles... The first son, James II, who had taken the throne after his brother Charles II died in 1685. Anyway, Mary, Stuart, Queen Mary, married to William of Orange, who ran off James II. Mary was James II's daughter from his first marriage. <laughs> Guess uh, Mary wasn't... Well, she was probably still pissed off of how Daddy treated Mommy. So, anyway... Yeah, she did. She dumped Anne Hyde was her mother's name, and James II dumped her, and then he married Mary Modena, this Italian princess, and part of the deal of marrying her is he had to say that the children would be born Catholic, and that's why Parliament kicked him off the throne. The things we do for love and religion, it's crazy. Anyway, William and Mary then implemented a series of statutes actively encouraging the distillation of English spirits. Under these statutes anyone could now distill by simply posting a notice in public and waiting 10 days. Everybody started making gin. And gin was so prevalent, it was sometimes distributed to workers as part of their pay. And soon, the volume sold daily in England exceeded what was being sold of beer and ale. So, in 1729... Government tried to fix things. They tried to correct things. They, back there in 1689, they'd started this. Well, was this 40 years later? Hey, we got to fix the problem we started. They then put out an excise license of 20 pounds, and that was. And then along with that, there was a duty of two shillings per gallon on gin. In addition to which, retailers of gin were required to buy a license, and this almost suppressed. The production of good gin. Why? Because the distillers, in order to make up for the money that they had to spend on tax and license, they began to skimp on the quality of their product. But the quantity consumed of the more cheaply produced spirit began to rise. And speaking of consuming spirits, I'm going to have I'm going to have a different kind of cocktail here. Okay, so this is uh, I'm going to take uh, this is a classic. This is this is one of the, the greatest cocktails ever made It'll be right here at the beginning of summer memorial days in this weekend all right I'm going to take two ounces of my uh, good friend there Hendricks gin that's two ounces I'm making it strong and then I've got my fever tree tonic water this is the best stuff in the world if you you need to get this. Thanks, Pat, for introducing me to it. And I'm putting that on there. And then I'm going to take a wedge of lemon. I didn't have a cucumber in the fridge, or I would have had a cucumber. Take, a sprinkle, and squeeze that in there and give it a twirl. I don't have a sippy stick. I used my finger, but it was clean. I washed my hands a while ago. Gin and tonic. Oh, man. That was delicious. A little more tonic. That's good tonic. Not all tonic is created equal. Anyway, so in 1730, London had over 7,000 shops that sold only spirits, and the main spirit they were selling was gin. Daniel Defoe, the author of... uh, Robinson Crusoe fame, he wrote The prodigious number of shopkeepers whose business is wholly and solely selling of spirits is of an enormity In certain areas, spirits were sold on an average out of one private home in every four. The abuse of alcohol by the poor became a major problem The 18th century Scottish novelist Smollett wrote, In these dismal caverns, strong water shops, they, the poor, lay until they recovered some of their faculties, and then they had recourse to the same mischievous potion. Lord Harvey declared, Drunkenness of the common people was universal. The whole town of London swarmed with drunken people from morning till night. William Hogarth, the, uh, the illustrator and painter, in his Gin Lane, an engraving about this period, portrays a scene of idleness, vice, and misery leading to madness and death. Now, the problem was, tried to be tackled by, the introduction of the Gin Act in 1736, which made gin extremely expensive. A license to retail gin cost 50 pounds per annum, which was the equivalent to a skilled working man's annual wage. And the duty on a gallon of gin was raised fivefold to one pound per gallon, with the smallest quantity that anyone could buy in retail being two gallons. The Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole, and Dr. Samuel Johnson were among those who opposed the act, since they considered it could be, there's no way this can be enforced against the will of the common people. And guess what? They were right. Riots broke out, and the law was widely and openly broken. And about this time, 11 million gallons of gin were being distilled in London, which was over 20 times that in only five decades earlier in 1690, when William III inducted the Distilling Act of the previous year. There was so much gin being distilled in the mid-18th century that it's estimated to be the equivalent of an average of 14 gallons of gin being made each year for every adult male in the population. Now, So you know not every adult male was drinking 14 gallons. There some of those guys weren't drinking any at all. They, they were teetotalers or temperance movement people. Or so so that means there probably some guys out there that were drinking, what, 28 gallons of gin a year or maybe more. But within six years of the Gin Act being in, introduced, only two distillers had taken out licenses. And over that same period of time, production rose by almost 50%. So much for trying to legislate morality. The Gin Act finally was recognized as being unenforceable and was repealed after only six years. And a new policy, which distillers helped to draft, was introduced. Reasonably high prices, reasonable excise duties, and licensed retailers under the supervision of magistrates. In essence, this is the same situation we find existing in most. Lawful governments today. Now, these changes led to a more respectable image for gin, and firms embarked on the business of distilling and retailing gin, and it became the drink of high quality, excuse me, which it has since remained. Many companies, companies established themselves as well to do manufacturers, often becoming patrons for major enterprises, just like distillers and brewers and wineries do today, these major companies, they sponsor a lot of our social, cultural, art, and um, what do I want to say? So a lot of our public works are sponsored by the producers of alcohol. One of these back at that time was uh, Sir Felix Booth, the distiller of Booth Gin, uh, which is still available today. Um, He sponsored John and James Ross's attempt to discover the Northwest Passage across Canada in 1829-33. The attempt failed, of course. They couldn't get through the ice uh, of the Arctic Ocean. But the expedition did establish where the true position of north, the North Magnetic Pole lie. So, thanks to Jen, we now know where all of our compasses point. About this same time there began a battle for the trade heating up between beer shops and gin shops. In 1820, the Beer House Act was passed, and beer was sold free of licensing control, and 45,000 beer shops and public houses opened up in England. These were aimed to be cozy homes from home for those who might not have had a very cozy home. But the gin retailers were still required to have licenses, and to compete with these beer shops and public houses, they devised the gin palaces. These were—they first appeared around 1830, and they were designed to be an escape from home, as home was for the poor, who continued to be gin's main supporters, and that they often lived in very sordid, slum conditions. And these gin palaces were large, imposing, handsome, luxuriously furnished. They were escape. They were an escape from their everyday terrible lives. By the 1850s, there were about 5,000 such places in London. But they were all through the British Empire. And then the one that I'm most familiar with, it's still in existence today, this gin palace in Belfast. It's called the Crown Liquor Saloon, and it is magnificent. It's, it's a wonderful place. And if you're ever up in Northern Ireland, don't be afraid of Belfast, everybody, okay? Do not be afraid of Northern Ireland. The troubles are over. I, there, there's always going to be some sectarian violence between gangs but most of it's over drug related stuff but don't be afraid of Northern Ireland go to Northern Ireland, go to Belfast go to Derry These they're beautiful places Anyway, but the Crown Liquor Saloon in Belfast is one of the greatest gin palaces I've ever been in I, it's maho- dark mahogany furnishings and tile floor and just brass and polished and well lit with Tiffany lamps it's absolutely gorgeous Anyway, these were places where people who lived in very squalid you know, conditions, they could get away, they could get an escape from their lives for a little bit. Charles Dickens, he described uh, these gin palaces in his sketches by Boz in the mid-1830s as perfectly dazzling when contrasted with the darkness and dirt we had just left. In the mid-1830s, the temperance movement started, not only here in the United States, but also over there in England, and whilst it failed to make a big impact in England, it did encourage much debate on drink, drunkenness, and public policy. Thomas Carlyle wrote of gin as, Liquid madness sold at ten pence the quartum. Well, by 1869, this led to an act licensing the sale of beer and wine Spirits were still licensed at this time. And two years later, a further act was introduced, which would have halved the number of public houses in the country. But public opinion was outraged. They love their pubs in England, just as they do in Ireland. One bishop, this this is a man of the church, he stated in the House of Lords that he would prefer to see all England free better than England sober and the act was withdrawn. As reforms took effect, so the gin production process became more refined. Gin evolved to become a delicate balance of subtle flavors, and it began its ascent into high society. Now, at this time, some of the iconic brands of gin that we consume today began to be distilled during the 18th and 19th centuries. The aforementioned Booth's gin was first distilled in 1740. Bombay Gin, originally distilled in Warrington, a city near the port of Liverpool First appeared in 1761 under the name of Warrington Dry Gin But was renamed in the 1950s, believe it it or not As Bombay Dry Gin, a romanticized name to catch the eye of the American cocktail drinkers Now Gordon's Gin, the largest selling brand in the world That's the one with the hog's head on it it was first distilled in 1769 By a Scotsman living in London Alexander Gordon In the Southwark region of that city Tangeray was first distilled in the 1830s By Charles Tangeray in the Bloomsbury section of London and beef, eater, blah, beef Eater Gin Drink Beef Eater Gin Was first distilled in Chelsea By James Burroughs in 1863 and given the iconic name after the guards of the Tower of London, the Beef Eaters. The image of the Beef Eater on the bottle is one of the most iconic in spirits marketing around the world. Now, while drinking of gin was for many years only the drink of the poor, it was during the development of cocktails in the mid-1800s when gin became a respectable libation. But two of the most famous gin cocktails ever devised really began as vehicles for the taking of medicines. See, the British Navy, the greatest known to the world in the 19th century, had a problem. Scurvy, a disease caused by the deficiency of vitamin C. And by the mid-1800s, it was known that scurvy could be prevented by a single daily dose Of vitamin C which was found mostly in citrus fruit remember I talked about the krauts they you also get vitamin C from sauerkraut which is what the uh, the the Germans carried on their ships was sauerkraut the English carried limes which is why today we call English people limeys and why we call uh, Germans krauts anyway it's another story I already told it once so the shipboard doctors had various ways of administering this a dosage of vitamin C. The most famous, of course, was grog, where West Indian rum would be mixed with water and juice of limes. But one British naval doctor, Surgeon Sir Thomas Desmond Gimlet, is credited with introducing a more preferred method of taking the medicine. That is the gimlet. And I'm going to make one right now. i still got my gin and tonic, but I'm going to make a gimlet. So, I take half a lemon right here. I got my juicer. I've got my citrus juicer. And I'm going to squeeze out the lemon, the juice of half of a lemon right here. All right. Or, excuse me, I'm going to do a whole lemon. Need more juice. This is the original gimlet. This is not the gimlet that you'll get today if you go into a bar and order a gimlet. All right. So, now I'm going to take two ounces. This time, not Hendrix. I'm going to use Dingle Gem. I'm going to use Dingle Gin. I'm going to take two ounces of Dingle Gin. Right? A little more. And I'm going to take the juice of one, freshly squeezed juice of one entire lemon. And I'm going to pour that in there, my cocktail glass. I'm now going to put ice in there. And this one, we are going to shake. We're going to shake the shit out of it. Alright, so we're going to shake this shit out of this. We're going to shake it until we get frost on the outside of the shaker Oh, there we go, it's nice Let's see if I can get the lid, there I got it Okay, and now pour that into my cocktail glass Twist of lemon in there and that, my friends, is the original Gimlet not as sweet as the one that you'll get if you go into a bar and order it today and I'll talk about that in just a minute but anyway, that was Sir Thomas Desmond Gimlet, that was his drink and he introduced it to the officers in the British Navy two ounces of London dry gin juice of a lemon or lime so today, if you go into a bar and you order a gimlet, you're more likely to have the drink made with Rose's Lime Juice. Of course, we do that too at the pub because it's just what's expected. Yeah, that's what people think when you say gimlet. And uh, anyway, it'll be much sweeter. But this is the original cocktail, the, the gin gimlet. Mm. Now, back to our next cocktail that was also a, originally a medicine our friend right here, the Gin & Tonic. Gin & Tonic is undoubtedly the most iconic of all British cocktails and it has its origins in the days of the expanding British Empire. The drink was actually a necessity brought on by the tropical disease, malaria. As British explorers, adventurers, soldiers and colonists began to go into the British possessions of the tropics, they inevitably were maligned with this disease. It's a mosquito-borne disease which brings on an illness with symptoms similar to influenza that is severe fever, chills, sweats, and this can reoccur over and over during the infected person's lifetime. What the British learned from the natives of India was that there was a relief to the symptoms of malaria available, and that was the dried and pulverized bark of the cinchona tree what the Indians called quinine. And it relieved the symptoms of the disease. By the 1840s, the Brits in India were using 700 tons of cinchona bark a year. And since quinine was very bitter, and if you've ever tasted real tonic, and I've got a little bit right here in this fever tree. They put a little sugar in theirs, but the original is still quite bitter. Anyway... And the powder, if you've ever tasted real tonic, you know what bitter means. Anyway, the powder that they used, it it wasn't easy to um, simply mix it with water. It just didn't dissolve in the water properly. And it didn't taste good. So they eventually began adding gin to the remedy. Now, besides the quinine, of course, the alcohol had some remedial value. It it eased your pain. (laughs) Who doesn't know that? And the two items together... Gin and quinine built an empire all across the British possessions around the globe in the, in the tropics, quinine and gin were being consumed together. Now add seltzer water, add carbonated water, which came along in the late 1800s, a wedge of lime or lemon. And you have got the consummate British drink. I remember, uh, the movie out of Africa, the doctor, when, uh, Meryl Streep's character goes into the doctor. He, she's sick, and uh, she didn't know it at the time, but she had syphilis. And uh, the doctor asked her first, oh, have you been drinking your quinine? And uh, so, I mean, it was just one of those. And that was in Kenya, in Africa. So, so they're drinking gin and tonic all over the British Empire. Even Winston Churchill recognized the benefits of the drink when he said, Gin and tonic has saved more Englishmen's lives and minds than all the doctors in the Empire. I'll say cheers to that, Sir Winston. Let's move across the Atlantic to America during Prohibition. This is when a new version of gin hits the streets. Bootleggers and wannabe bootleggers and anybody that had a little bit of gumption and wanted to make a little money They'd buy cheaply made ethanol from moonshiners. They'd pour it into some type of vessel. Sometimes it was a bathtub that was the biggest vessel they had in their house. And they'd add different flavorings and additives and strain it and sell it as gin. Bathtub gin, as it was called, was bad. And in some cases, depending upon the quality of the ethanol and the additives, it could be absolutely deadly. You know, they say, well, if you drink enough, it'll make you go blind. Some of this shit would. You know, there were, they were distilling stuff during Prohibition using car radiators as the cooling worm uh, on, the, on the, it's the still. And you know, there's a lot of metals in there that weren't meant to be stuck into a human body. Anyway, and because of poor distillation methods, the taste was usually not very good. So they had to put in additives to attempt to hide the poor quality. And this also gave a rise to a whole new catalog of Prohibition-era cocktails, including the Gin Rickey, which when I was in high school and college, this was still a very popular drink. It's basically just a gimlet with club soda and some more sugar. Sometimes they put 7-Up in it. The Orange Blossom, which is gin, sweet vermouth, and orange juice. And the French, 75. This is gin, simple syrup, lemon juice, and cheap champagne. You wouldn't use good champagne in this drink. Cheap champagne. Which was basically all you could get in the United States during, pro- Excuse me, during Prohibition was bad champagne. But bathtub gin was not the only gin that was being consumed in the United States during this time. From across the border in Canada, bootleggers like Al Capone, Nucky Johnson, and others were bringing in Seagram's gin, along with Seagram's VO Canadian Whiskey. And these two brands, along with Cuddy Sark Scotch, were first introduced to the American market during the enforcement of the Volstead Act in the 1920s. And they remained incredibly popular with Americans for the rest of the 20th century. Seagram's gin is still the number one selling gin in the United States. But you know that doesn't mean it's the best. The popularity of a brand is not always an indication of quality. I mean, granted the Toyota Camry, the number one selling car in America, is it's a fine automobile for the money. But it ain't a BMW or an Audi. I'm just saying. Today, gin is going through a renaissance. Boutique gins are popping up all around the world. The two gins that I've got here with me tonight, uh, I've got Hendrix gin, all right? And Hendrix is made by William Grant & Sons. They also make Tullamore Dew, and they make uh, monkey shoulder scotch, and they make... Uh, they make some. Oh, they make... Uh, Glenfiddich. They make some good scotches. Anyway... This is made in Scotland by William Grant & Sons. It's infused with yarrow root, juniper berries. Mm -hmm. Smells delicious. Um, Elderflower petals, orange peel, angelica root, caraway, chamomile, coriander, uh, peppercorns are infused in this, orris root, lemon, and two very unusual ingredients. Which are not found in any other gin, or at least they weren't when they started making this a few years ago. Rose petals and cucumber. Now, the other gin I have here, this is Dingle gin, and this comes to us from the County of Kerry in Ireland, and I used this when I made my gimlet. Anyway. Dingle is on the western it's the most southwestern point in Ireland actually it's the most western point in Ireland the Dingle Peninsula the next zip code over is Nova Scotia anyway as I said it's made in Dingle in the County Kerry of Ireland and if you go to Ireland go out to Dingle take a tour of their distillery they are great people and of course please tell them I sent you anyway This gin combines local botanicals from the Dingle Peninsula to give it a unique character unknown to almost any other gin. They use rowanberry from the mountain ash trees. They use the fuchsia petals from the flowers in the hedgerows. That's the fuchsia plant. They use bog myrtle, hawthorn, and heather. And it gives them a taste of the Kerry landscape. It's, oh man, it smells so good. Like I said, gin is really kind of perfumed vodka. It's 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 really something. And this formula that Dingle Gin uses, it's unknown uh, anywhere else. And it is calculated, amongst other things, to create, as they say, a sense of place and providence. It's good. And this bottle of Dingle Gin, we can't buy it in Missouri. This was given to us by our friends Brian and Skippy, who live in Springfield, Illinois. And they picked this up for us. And I'll be glad when this particular spirit is available. And we'll have a bottle on the shelf down at Patty Malone's. Anyway. So, I would say this to you now after you've listened to this show. If you don't like gin, maybe tonight you might have an impetus to try it again. I know I wouldn't have probably gotten back into gin had it not been for the suggestion of a good bartender in a good pub on a rainy night in Dublin. Thanks, Pat. Thanks so much. So, kids, this is your drunk Uncle Al leaving you with a quote from Dr. Hawkeye Pierce of the 4077th MASH unit who once sardonically quipped, I'll stick with gin. Gin. Champagne is just ginger ale that knows somebody. History episode 27 was written and produced by me, Alan Tapman. The technical director of history is Brian McGeorge. History, the story of alcohol is a wild Irish production all rights reserved and is recorded at River's Edge Studios and Parts in Patty Malone's Irish Pub in Jefferson City. To learn more about our local pub, find us on Facebook, Patty Malone's Irish Pub. This week's phrase for you podcast listeners and patrons who come into the pub is... Champagne is just ginger ale that knows somebody. Tell your server or bartender that phrase and get a special offer off of any mixed drink. It doesn't have to be gin, but any mixed drink. That's this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, May, what, 23rd, 4th, and 5th. Champagne is just ginger ale that knows somebody. That's your phrase of the week. Only one special per person per day. And this offer is not valid to anyone under the age of 21. And uh, we've got a new Patreon patron this week. Wow. Hey. Welcome to the History Family, a very old and dear friend of mine from Hannibal, Mary Lynn Path Richards. Thank you ML. Thank you so much. And a big shout out to Mary Lynn and all of you out there who are Patreon patrons to this show. You are the ones that make this happen. If it weren't for your support, I'd have probably had to give this up a long time ago. We have podcast platform fees research time. Brian and I, you know, we both got other lives, but we love doing this show and you guys are giving that love back to us with your patronage. And it's really simple and it only costs the amount amount of a pint of beer a month. It's really easy to do. Go to the website in the upper right hand corner of the page, click on support. There you'll find out how to become a monthly contributor to the program you'll be helping us to offset web hosting and podcast platform fees as well as underwriting our expenses related to recording and editing software oh, excuse me, and time spent researching, writing, recording, and editing and of course you know, I've got to edit the alcohol I've got a to drink to be able to tell you these stories, otherwise I'm, I'm, a I'm a fake I'm a phony, I'll never be a faker and thanks again all of you for your support. Thanks to everyone who shared the post on Facebook and Twitter. If you haven't yet started, please follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash history and on Twitter at history. Please like and share the post about the episodes when they come out each week. That's the best way we can get the word out to the people. And if you've got a friend that's a history nerd like me, and they like alcohol like I do. Maybe they're a podcast listener. You please tell them about history. It's greatly appreciated. And thanks for spreading the gospel of history, the story of alcohol. If you're a fan of the show and you're so moved, please give us a glowing review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. That would be greatly appreciated. Any questions or show ideas, either send me a message via Twitter, as uh, I will have to give a shout-out to Tim Emmel who suggested this uh, topic on Twitter, you either give me a shout-out on Twitter or email me uh, at, cheers at history.com. You can also message me on Facebook. That'd be you can find more information about the podcast on our website, www.history.com, as well as links to connect you on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Most of you already know that. The theme music for history is provided by Ben Sound. Do you need music for a project, then contact www.bensound.com and see what solutions they may have for you. That's bensound.com. Ben Sound. And I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take a week off. I know. You're like, what? Yes, I'm going to take a break off. I'm headed up to the Boundary Waters. This will be my 10th trip there. I'm going up. Um, Since 1988, the year after I finished grad studies at Mizzou, I went up there. This will be my 10th trip up there, and I'm going up with my godson and uh, four very good friends. um, And we're going to go spend a week in the Boundary Waters Canoe Wilderness of North Grand Moraine, Minnesota. And uh, so I'm going to take a week off. And I'm sorry if that's going to be the day after Memorial Day. I I won't have a program here. But you know what, I I need to re- I'm gonna recharge the batteries and I'm going to go up there and there's a great tavern up on the Gunflint Trail and I'm going to try to get an interview with them and hopefully I'll come back with some material from them for the podcast. So, won't be here next Tuesday, so I'll see you then, whether that be June, look at the calendar here. I'll be back on June 6th. So anyway. You guys enjoy your Memorial Day weekend, enjoy your holiday, and you remember Memorial Day is a day that we remember those who have, in some cases, given their lives for our country, but also for those who we love who have gone on to another world. So, I wish you a pleasant and happy Memorial Day. And thank you all for listening, thanks so much, I, I promise. Keep trying to get better. Have a great week. Have a great two weeks. Be safe. Drink responsibly. Don't drink and drive. So, until next week, if I don't see you at the pub, I'll be in Minnesota. But I'll be right back here on the podcast on Tuesday, June 6th. And of course, as always, Mary Lee, thank you. Thank you for everything. You are the measure of my dreams. All right, so goodbye everybody.